0: Welcome to Roll Calling, a podcast about actors we love and the movies we love them in. I'm Ned Baker, a filmmaker and a movie watching guy who didn't present an intro <laughs> this week.
1: And I'm Caroline Sita, and I can dig it.
0: Great. The way that this podcast works is that Caroline and I take turns curating a five film miniseries starring an actor we love and the actor we love whom we are discussing this week and last week and next week and the weeks on either side of that is Jeffrey Wright, the absolutely top tier that guy actor who this is what happens when I don't prep a script (laughs) for these things. It comes in real, real loosey goosey. I'm, I'm feeling a little bit less formal because we don't have a guest on today. It's just
1: you and me, baby.
0: Just you and me, baby. So I'm coming in hot. To talk about... Shaft. Shaft. That's right. Can you dig it? I wasn't
1: sure if you were setting me up for a classic
0: Shaft. Yeah, we kind of were. We may, we'll we probably do that a lot this uh, episode. For the past, past week or so, Emily's gotten, I think, very annoyed with my sort of walking around and going, Shaft.
1: <laughs> Can I read you the... Um, it wasn't really a tagline, but it was a voiceover from the trailer for the 1971 Shaft. The sort of Absolutely. like verbal tagline is... Hotter than Bond, cooler than Bullet. Isn't that such a good tagline? Yeah. You know, Bullet the Steve McQueen.
0: Absolutely. Ugh. Yeah. Bullet's extremely cool. Bond's extremely hot. But Shaft this is more. Like,
1: Fuck you both. I'm the best. <laughs> <laughs> That's
0: Right. Which I can really respect. And yeah, I feel like maybe there's too much copyright business now. You know, if it's like if you just made a car movie and you're like better than The Fast and Furious. Yeah feel like we've kind of moved away from that that little like line of marketing but yeah there's a lot of very cool slogans and such attached to both that film and and uh, its subsequent sequels and this one before we jump on into shaft town uh how you been caroline
1: you know i'm good it's getting into busy time of year for us film slash tv critics where we're i'm sort of like catching up with all of the year end all the movies and tv shows that came out this year but it's mm-hmm. been fun to sort of squeeze a little bit of shaft in between all the new stuff as well.
0: It's been a medium busy time for me. I have been uh, traveling a little bit, and I'm going to be traveling a little bit more. But I was in um, I was in New York yesterday. Wild. Uh, you
1: kind of just casually revealed this to me before we started recording and then didn't explain further. Yeah, and I,
0: I didn't finish my story. So here's, so here's my story. You did end up seeing the 1971 shaft yeah, this week. I
1: watched that along with the 2000 version.
0: Yes. So to be clear, our podcast is focused today on the 2000 version. But as I was about to start it, I heard the theme song. And I was like, this is so cool. You know, I never saw the original. I wonder if it's and it's just right there on HBO Max. So I just put it up. And I wasn't sure if you'd done the same. So I was in New York yesterday, going to meet my brother in Washington Square Park, and I got off the train and i was looking for a coffee shop nearby and i looked up coffee and just down the block from me was cafe reggio does that mean anything to you
1: was that in the movie was that where he got the espresso
0: exactly that's where he gets the espresso from that extremely uh sort of
1: (laughs) yeah deadpan waitress
0: deadpan waitress character i
1: forgot the lemon
0: a weird bit uh, with this waitress and then uh you know an interesting tense confrontation with an italian gangster that culminates in machine gun fire a few minutes later but yeah the the little uh it's the it's the place that brought the cappuccino to america whoa i didn't know this yeah it's neat it's very cute i've got a little picture i think emily took a picture of me so stay tuned on our twitter for pictures of me at cafe reggio but yeah it was a great it was a whirlwind whirlwind trip i was in dc and new york this weekend but that's just the way the east coast works you know yeah
1: i don't understand i'm from the midwest everything is five hours away
0: yeah no i literally like i saw a wedding in dc the next morning i got on an amtrak And I took a brief nap. And when I woke up, I was in New York City. Wow. So
1: having your own shaft walking tour.
0: Exactly. I really was. As well as um, I was riding those little mopeds around. You can rent these mopeds. Oh, so fun. Anyway, that's maybe more of a a catch up than we usually do. Let's dive headfirst into a movie that I had never seen before. Had you ever seen 2000s
1: Shaft? No, famously not because this is one of the rare Christian Bale films that I haven't seen. I had my list, literally printed out from the internet as in high school with all the Christian Bale movies and I would, I think I would highlight them instead of crossing them out once I watched them. Mm-hmm. And Shaft was always just like sitting there, you know, on the list. I had never seen it and now I wish I had the paper in front of me so I could finally highlight Ooh. this, not exactly a Christian Bale vehicle, but you know, he's a featured player.
0: He's got a part. I guess he's theoretically the primary antagonist. Mm-hmm. Although I feel like there's a TV trope for this, like pulling the star Scream where the or dragon ascendant, where the the figure who is supposed to essentially be working for Christian Bale's arch villain, actually kind of has machinations of his own and kind of ascends to the top tier, like pull position antagonist in the in the workings of the film. And that is Jeffrey Wright's turn as Peoples Hernandez.
1: I think it was maybe actually supposed to be Christian Bale is the main antagonist all the way through, but Jeffrey Wright like, tested better, so they maybe refilmed some stuff with him. That was mm-hmm. the sense. I didn't do that much research into this movie, but the sense I was getting was that Jeffrey Wright's role like kept getting bigger and bigger as this film was sort of in its very tumultuous production period.
0: Yes, something that I think I can say was probably a good decision. Mm. Uh, I mean, maybe not scaling down the Christian Bale. I'm not taking a dig at Christian Bale, But I think if you want right now the very short version of my review of this film, I would say it is a fun film, but really not outstanding in any regard, except the Jeffrey Wright performance, which to me, I thought was absolutely dynamic and stunning. I I mean, maybe stunning is a strong word. It is essentially an action movie villain, Mm -hmm. but I think he brings a lot to the role in the way... uh, Previous guest, Joe Cunningham, talks about Jeffrey Wright taking swings in some of his roles. I think he's definitely doing that here. He is making strong choices, bringing a big energy to a lot of his scenes, and to my mind is one of the most successful aspects of the film.
1: I would say my biggest takeaway from this movie, I don't know if, I actually don't know if I love the Jeffrey Wright performance, but this did make me realize that my personal mental image of Jeffrey Wright is so tied to the sort of Westworld Hunger Games nerdy scientist thing Mm -hmm. and as we're doing this podcast i'm like oh that's not really he does a lot more (laughs) like he does big performances like people's hernandez might be is this true the biggest performance we've covered on this podcast yet in terms of the
0: size of the acting not the size of the (laughs) role that's a great question i mean i feel like american psycho has some big 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 acting at times but in a way that i mean is almost more like I don't know, avant-garde weird. Whereas this is a little bit broad, but it is certainly it is certainly big, big, big. I mean, to jump willy-nilly throughout the film, the scene where Jeffrey Wright, where Peoples-Hernandez's brother, whom I didn't realize was his brother until that moment, Same. gets shot in a shootout. I'm like, oh, one of his henchmen died, and he goes nuts, uh, crying, being like, you killed my brother, And he carries this little ice pick around and he comes flying out of the car, basically unarmed, like running at Shaft, sticking himself in the chest with the ice pick, saying like, you better kill me, man. You better kill me. It's insanely Mm -hmm. dramatic. He's like wildly, he's like wildly distraught. And it, it kind of like crashes into the film very abruptly in I'd say the most spectacular of a series of, you know, somewhat uneven, pacing, plotting moments.
1: Do you know what I'm now realizing? Thinking about the fact that maybe Wright's role was increased, I wonder if that character was not written as his brother. And they were like, we need to get him in the end, so we'll say this guy that got killed, do you know what I mean, was his brother, and give him this big dramatic scene here. Oh, wow. I don't know. That was just pure speculation on my part, but- That might make sense. I think that this role... The way I would sum up this role is like Jeffrey Wright watched Scarface and then remembered hanging out with Benicio Del Toro on the set of Basquiat. It was like, I'm just going to combine those two influences into this wildly over the top. But also... He does, I I cite Benicio because he does a lot of those like really weird line readings that I feel like Benicio does. Like you'll just give Benicio del Toro a script and he'll like, he'll just be like, I won't say these words in the way any normal human would say them. I'll put pauses and I will linger and I will emphasize strange words. And I feel like Jeffrey Wright is fully doing that with his sort of like free flowing, almost seductive, charismatic dialogue. But then also a lot of that Pacino Scarface over the top, you know, stabbing yourself in the chest with an ice pick stuff.
0: I think that lineage is an accurate one to point to. Although maybe I was just in the thrall of this. I sort of feel and I feel this about Benicio as well. Although maybe it's just me enjoying interesting line readings, you know, interesting ways as as I think I've discussed a couple of times, like knowing how to break up a line. I think that that is also the way that people talk in real life. I, I would say that I thought Jeffrey Wright at certain times in this was giving the most naturalistic performance mm. in the ensemble in terms of at least just having some sort of like depth and nuance because there this cast is full of like extremely capable actors yes you have tony collette the overly talented queen of the thankless role seen here in her natural habitat we could do a tony collette series we absolutely could damn she's phenomenal and can do so many different types of things and she's playing i don't know essentially like a very boring like cop movie trope of like the tortured witness I don't think she has much to do and yet she's like really central to the plot. Mm-hmm.
1: The plot op- the plot opens with this murder that's happened at a club
0: mm-hmm. where Christian
1: Bale's character has killed it's MacKay Pfeiffer, isn't it? Yeah.
0: And it? Oh, wow.
1: sh- yeah, <laughs> because at first I didn't realize that character was going to have flashbacks mm-hmm. at, at first they're literally just a dead body and I was like is that is MacKay Pfeiffer just playing a dead body in
0: this movie? <laughs> you first see him like on the pavement with his brains running out. So, yeah. yeah.
1: And I was like, what? Yeah, so they, there's a shaft is basically trying to figure out a way to take Christian Bale's character, who's this wealthy guy who can just kind of pay his way out of, you know, any legal trouble. He's trying to, he's trying to find a way to take him down. And that all hinges on Tony Collette's waitress who saw the murder but then was paid off by Christian Bale to, to go on the run and not speak about it.
0: He's the only eyewitness. Other people are sort of fingering him and saying, like, this is a racially motivated, you know, hate crime. But he needs that key witness, and she is in the wind. With her big old Italian brothers. (laughs) With her her two giant Italian brothers. I mean, the plot, it does feel like it gets away a little bit. I mean, as you sort of mentioned, I feel like the final confrontation between Peoples and Shaft has at that point left behind... It's like Peoples is hired by Christian Bale's Walter Wade to find and kill this witness. But then...
1: Because People's Brothers gets
0: killed, the movie kind of switches to this revenge mm-hmm. plot. Yeah, it feels like it kind of just loses the thread a little bit, and there are a lot of characters get involved, and there's some crooked cops get involved. Buster Rhymes is in there for some reason. It's sort
1: of like the the uh, driver, Shaft's driver.
0: Buster Rhymes to me is the low, the weak link in the ensemble. I find mm. him very annoying in this, and I feel like. His part just screams of a then relevant celebrity being written into a movie in a way that does not support his level of involvement or his acting capability.
1: Also strange use of Vanessa Williams, Mm -hmm. sort of underused as Shaft's like police, I don't know, friend, partner. Again, yeah,
0: Vanessa Williams playing, I would say, essentially a one note police movie trope of just sort of, like, another competent cop. I mean, it's really hard to say what her personality is, except she's like, I like being a cop. I think that
1: the things that you are describing as maybe being a little too simplistic,
0: Mm -hmm. I actually kind
1: of appreciated that about this movie. I was like, if you made this movie today, which they kind of did with the 2019 shaft that I haven't seen, but the trailers implied had a much more comedic tone. But I think if you were to make an action movie like this today it would just be so complicated there would be some like i don't know like the james bond government created nanorobot viruses and you'd <laughs> go to multiple countries and there would be all these twists and it would just they would just be doing too much i was like damn in 2000 they were just like yeah it's just a it's just a little simple story it's basically self-contained and sort of circular all these characters are sort of reconfiguring in different combinations of allegiances but it's pretty small And simple, and it doesn't need to be about saving the world. It's just sort of about this one case, and then it's over. It's like, yeah, I kind of appreciate the simplicity of it because I'd think that you don't quite get simple action movies like this today.
0: I hear that, and yet compare it to 1971's Shaft, Mm -hmm. which you watched before or after the 2000. I watched after. Okay, I watched them in chronological order.
1: Should we just lay out? The time, the general Shaft <laughs> timeline, the timeline, which I actually didn't know. Like, I did you have a cultural conception of Shaft before you watched any of these movies?
0: The theme song and the coats. Mm-hmm. But I will say, you know, in a way that we often are sort of saying, because of our medium youngish age, you know, we we learned of Jamie Lee Curtis as the Activia, and then we retroactively went back and learned <laughs> sure. about her whole history as like an eighties <laughs> icon. Yeah, Shaft. My first conception was of the Samuel L. Jackson, that cover, shaved head, long coat, that sort of character, whom I only knew from posters and trailers. And then I became later on sort of aware that there was an older shaft, which I assumed was kind of like outdated and lame. And yeah, I knew the theme song. So Mm -hmm. that would be my my sense of the 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 history of things how about yourself
1: I feel like I actually always sort of had this and I don't know where it came from but I had this mental image of like who Shaft was as the 70s icon and I I don't think that image was fully correct like watching the the 71 movie I was like oh this is way more like low-key than I expected it to be I was sort of expecting something more over the top but I like I did know somehow even though I hadn't seen 2000 you know, I hadn't seen The Shaft from 2000. Even when that came out, I was like, oh, yeah, it's like a remake of that famous, you know, 70s thing. Like, I do feel like Shaft is one of those characters who a lot of people could be familiar, are familiar with, even if they haven't actually seen mm-hmm. The Shaft Properties, which are the 1971 Richard Roundtree movie that we both watched. It's like a really just like a fun 70s, like noir. Kind so, of yeah. Mostly I, in Harlem. I,
0: I, will, I will say more on this in a moment, but I loved 1971 Shaft.
1: Mm-hmm. Loved and, it. And then you get two sequels that are also also with Richard Roundtree that Shaft, I think progressively...
0: Shaft in Africa.
1: Which is such a good title. And I think that those progressively get more over the top. At least that's what I was getting from the trailers for them. I didn't mm-hmm. watch those. Those basically come out like 71, 72, 73. They do a very short-lived, like seven episode sort of sort of tv or movie of the week thing where richard roundtree also plays the character
0: and i'll say real quickly that sort of similarly to giant coming out as an adaptation of a novel the, the original shaft yes. novel is 1970 and the original shaft film is 1971 and then he keeps writing more novels the second of which is called <laughs> shaft among the jews <laughs> Oh, no. Which I just don't... I can't imagine. Ned, There's I'm, no... I
1: don't know if I've ever just seen you that befuddled by something you've
0: witnessed. <laughs> I just couldn't get it out. <laughs> what a title. There's no Wikipedia page for Shaft Among the Jews. Possibly it has gone the way of the dodo and is only yeah. available to book collectors. But, yeah, the author, Ernest Tidyman writes eight Shaft novels. Shaft's Carnival of Killers and The Last Shaft goodbye Mr. Shaft so Mm. those are going along and I think the first film is definitely an adaptation of that
1: yes you got the the 70s movies brief tv show then they Mm -hmm. do this sort of the 2000 version I think is something we get a lot now it's like a legacy sequel slash Mm -hmm. reboot yes where it is in it is technically in continuity with the original ones in that the shaft that Samuel L. Jackson plays is the nephew of Richard Roundtree's shaft who is sort of Almost more of a cameo appearance, I would say, than like a full-fledged character in it. Yes,
0: disappointingly.
1: Then this movie has a sort of like troubled production history, does okay at the box office, but doesn't really get amazing reviews or, you know, that much money. So then we get a long break. And then in 2019, they released another Shaft that retcons it so that the original Shaft so that Richard Roundtree Shaft is actually the dad of Samuel L. Jackson Shaft, even though the actors are only six years apart in <laughs> age. <laughs> and then they give Samuel L. Jackson's character a son. So it's like three generation of Shafts. I haven't seen it. I thought the trailers looked god awful. The trailers made me feel like, have I totally misunderstood what Shaft is? Because it, it played like a broad sitcom comedy, but I think... It's more that that movie got the tone wrong than that I was confused about what the tone of a Shaft movie yeah. traditionally is. I don't think that movie was hugely well received.
0: Yeah, that's too bad. And that may be that may be curtains for Shaft. It may be goodbye Mr. Shaft uh, yeah. <laughs> after after that one in terms of the franchise's future. Although, you know, this is a uh, this is a 50-year, well, it's a 48-year film continuity and they took 20 they took 19 years between the last two installments so maybe we'll get four shafts you know Samuel four Jackson shafts. Jesse Usher and then as yet to become famous
1: and like the little kid from this is us standing or... around yeah
0: standing around like a grave that says like John Shaft 1 and being like we got to avenge <gasps> oh dad great great grandpa shaft who knows we'll see
1: i was reading a little bit about the sort of production history of 2000 Shaft. Mm-hmm. Also, sidebar, can we stop having sequels that are just the same title? We ran into this problem with Halloween. Yes. I cannot be like, you know, because because if you were ranking the Shaft movies, you could rank them Shaft, Shaft, Shaft. <laughs> That's right. It is impossible to talk about. And also the year 2000 is a very annoying year to say. Somehow like 2001's Shaft would be less annoying than 2000's Shaft. <laughs> Anyway, 2000s Shaft, I think John Singleton's original idea was that this was going to be much more of a buddy cop movie with Richard Roundtree's Shaft as a prominent character sort of working alongside Samuel L. Jackson's Shaft. Mm -hmm. But I think that one of the many, many studio notes that he got was sort of like, we just want to make this a Samuel L. Jackson vehicle. We don't want this older guy to be part of it. Like, you can only have him as a cameo, basically. So I think that that was one of the (laughs) numerous sort of behind the scenes conflicts that were going on in the making of this movie yes
0: scott rudin who i think emerges from the imdb trivia page as really the arch villain of this film's production now i may just be seeing that i mean there have been these uh, you know stories have come to light in the past few years about what an incredibly tyrannical abusive boss he is and so
1: yeah he is basically the allegations against him are not of the sexual nature in the way that the harvey weinstein ones were but it is an equivalent level of like abusive emotionally sometimes physically abusive behavior Yeah, to it that was sort of big story broke and he's kind of stepped away although who knows for how long that will last yes
0: we'll just with the public attention we'll just forget and then he'll be back to make as much more money as he likes but yeah they they talk about him you know demanding that the main character be Shaft's nephew and richard roundtree's uh involvement being reduced and i cannot express how much of a bad decision i think that is i think Think Richard Roundtree in 1971 Shaft is so fucking charming. I just adore him. I think that character is just really alive. I mean, as much as he is kind of like a bundle of tropes and ease, and you know, he has so few like, struggles and flaws in the movie. He's just like a cool dude who wears cool clothes. He's friends with everybody. Mm -hmm. He's got a nice pad. He has sex with all kinds of women. I was so struck by his sense of humor, his like genuine ease and this idea of like, like even the origins of the word cool as being something that comes from the black community about not getting angry because displaying anger is dangerous for black men in like mid 20th century America and now. And this is the coolest dude. He's basically, like, taking it from Mm -hmm. all sides. And always he just shrugs and laughs and flashes his beautiful smile. I think it was his first film role in that he was a model model and actor. Mm. I think he did commercials. But basically, the director, Gordon Parks, was like, this is the guy. And I really think that Richard Roundtree and, and director Gordon Parks together really create a strong character and a really strong sense of atmosphere, as well as just, like, I think a beautiful... Little document of 1970s New York, which to me, as I walk around New York, I'm like, that is New York to me, is what we see in movies like Shaft. There's a lot of just great street locations and places Mm -hmm. like Cafe Reggio, where you can still go get a decent cappuccino. But I think that having Richard Roundtree on board for your movie and sidelining him, I mean, one of the first notes I wrote is, I want Uncle Jay to be like central in this, but I feel like he's not going to be. So to see that, in fact, he is not, and then to read that John Singleton, because I have... I think, a lot of esteem for John Singleton. Mm-hmm. And so I was inclined to be like, huh, how does a director like him crank out such a, I think, I mean, okay, John Singleton did Too Fast, Too Furious. So, you know, he's he's, <laughs> he's, he's clearly capable of, of stumbling. But, but I, I was just like, oh, I'm disappointed to see such a flat, you know, sometimes kind of like weirdly racist movie mm-hmm. come out of him the guy who did Boys in the Hood. And now Mm -hmm. I am able to, at least in my head, true or not, write the narrative that John Singleton brought in some good ideas and then the studio nixed them, pushed them away. He also, Don Cheadle was John Singleton's original choice for the lead role, which I think would be a really good fit. He feels more to me like a successor of the type of energy that Richard Roundtree was bringing.
1: Which I actually think is interesting because before I watched 1971 Shaft, and I read that Don Cheadle was one of his was one of um, Singleton's top choices. I was like, oh, that doesn't make any sense at all. That's like the wrong energy. Obviously, Samuel L. Jackson is the energy of Shaft. Mm-hmm. But that I think that speaks to the way that Shaft as like a cultural image is actually kind of different than Shaft as in the first movie mm-hmm. because I think Samuel L. Jackson does fit the sort of like shut your mouth cultural image of Shaft. Mm-hmm. But I actually think Don Cheadle, you're so right, is so much more of the energy. Of the original Shaft. Mm-hmm. Much more relaxed. Cool under pressure. Just always the most calm collected person in the room. And and just like a low key confidence. That I actually think Don Cheadle has. In a different way than maybe the more like. Outward confidence of Samuel L. Jackson.
0: Yeah all these little like. Shaft just has this incredible collection. Of like understated one liners. Through that first movie. Just you're a very wise Caucasian Vic. It's just so. He's just really like low-key and charming. And uh, Samuel L. Jackson, I think, is truly like, the dude works as much as he does because he's a charisma machine. He brings the Mm -hmm. Samuel L. Jackson thing to the screen and it works. He is magnetic. And I also don't just want to say that although he's often, I think, sort of asked to do the same sort of thing, I think there is a lot of evidence in some of his films, that Samuel Jackson is capable of doing quite a number of things, quite a number of for different sure. types of characters, despite the fact that people sort of seem to want the snakes on the plane model, which yeah. which we are getting here, for sure. And in spite of his being, I think, generally just a magnetic actor, I just feel like the character is a lot less specific, a lot less dynamic. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he, you know, he's got it going on, but like, I think I don't mind the simplicity, to return to your earlier comment, of Mm -hmm. the plot and things. It's just the fact that there's so many people in this that I'm like, "Uh, there's really nothing going on there. You know, there's like not much to dig into in terms of the characters. And I don't know that I need more details about whose backstory is what, but they just feel Mm kind of... The performances themselves feel generic to me.
1: I think what I'm realizing is that watching the 2000 version and then and sort of enjoying that just as its own little product of the two of the aughts, Mm -hmm. you know, the late 90s or early aughts, and then going back and also enjoying the 1971 version was probably the correct order. Whereas you were coming in, discovering this wonderful 1971 film and then watching what was essentially like a less good, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, aughts version of it. So I can see why we're having such different reactions. Yes,
0: absolutely. I would say if you are considering watching these movies, I strongly recommend you do it Caroline's order. Yeah. Although (laughs) if we had not had this conversation, I think my recommendation would be go out, check out the 1971 Shaft on HBO Max. And the 2000 Shaft, I wouldn't navigate away from it if it was on TV, but it really occupies that space in my head.
1: Yes, it definitely feels like a TV, not a TV movie, but a movie that you would watch. Yes. Oh, yeah, it's on TBS this afternoon. I'll, like, come in and out.
0: Except for the fact that, it, you know, it's an R with, like, a bunch of profanity in it. Yeah, that but I,
1: they wouldn't show I would it on TV. Really they couldn't show see, it on TV.
0: I just hate to see what they make of that. In fact, I was watching it briefly on YouTube. And it was just a uh, Christian Bale saying, forget you. It's like, or the, the person <laughs> dubbing Christian Bale saying that. And I was like, sure. no, I can't watch this. I need the, I need the swears. I need the original swears.
1: I do think even watching this without the context of the 70s one, mm-hmm. I, you know, I think to fully enjoy the 2000 film, you need to just really be able to turn your brain off from like all social, real world context in a way. absolutely, Which I was... I was willing to do while watching this. You know, Mm -hmm. I don't know if everyone could or should do that. (laughs) Um, You know, the original movie is Shaft as a private investigator, private detective. Yep. Who is sort of, you know, he can he can sometimes work with the white cops. He can sort of check in with like he ends up working with the sort of like black power movement, and he's has involvement with um, black gangsters who are in a rivalry with some Italian gangsters but he's a he's a guy who's like very much his own agent but can just like work through all these different worlds mm-hmm. whereas i think the 2000 shaft it opens with him as a police detective and even though like halfway through he does end up just becoming an independent agent yeah, he gives
0: up the badge it is, yeah
1: yeah he, he in fact throws the badge <laughs> across the courtroom and it sticks into the wall like it's a throwing star or something <laughs> an absolutely wild moment but even though shaft you know very dramatically gives up his badge this whole the 2000 movie definitely has the vibe of like vigilante cop justice totally and like we're gonna rough people up and sort of i don't know if it's meant to be satirical but sort of just like lean into the corruption of police Mm -hmm. as like a main element of the movie, but almost an element you are supposed to be cheering for at least when it's aimed at like the bad people. Yes,
0: absolutely. And all
1: of that is very different than the seventies version and also just difficult to watch slash parse as to what this movie is trying to say with all of that stuff. Yeah,
0: I really feel there are these moments where because Shaft is the good guy, we're supposed to see this as a system working when There's a moment where basically in exchange for information from this one woman, she says, can you make sure that like hoodlum on the corner doesn't talk to my son anymore? So Shaft goes over sight unseen on the word of this woman, beats the shit out of this kid and points his gun at him and all of his friends and is like, I will fucking kill you if you if you ever talk to this woman's son again. And there's this moment where, uh, you know, a roller, a cop car comes up and shaft kind of looks up at the white cop in the car and you're like wait is he gonna get in trouble and the white cop just gives him a big nod and rolls on Mm -hmm. and there's a couple other like cops looking the other way moments including at the very end where shaft's like i'm gonna go uh i'm gonna go fuck up some guy who's beating a woman and vanessa williams as the rule following cop is like you can't do that he says give me one for the road and it's like shrug so all those cops look the other way moments are definitely treated in i think a pretty naive way as like that's the system working and i think with what has been brought to light in the mainstream since that time about the deep unaccountability of police departments and police unions, it is increasingly challenging to look away from that and not be deeply chilled by it.
1: And yet, I also think that the thing that I was struggling with, it's not like John Singleton is is unaware of these issues. In a way, it's interesting how much it's foregrounded, right? It's like, the whole movie is basically like, yeah, all the police are corrupt. And I was like, is there a sort of reclamation angle? It's like, yeah, but this time they're going to be corrupt in like, our favor like i was wondering if there was because it's so overt right it's like such a big part of that movie like Mm -hmm. the nod scene you're talking about is so prominent yes
0: it's really like highlighted
1: and i don't know certainly neither of us are the experts who are going to be like (laughs) breaking down these complicated issues but like it's not a thing where it's like oh we don't the movie's unaware that these cops are corrupt right like the point of the movie is sort of that all cops are corrupt but then instead of taking a moral judgment against that the movie's kind of just like Yeah, and this is how Shaft, like, does what he does. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I can see that. And I found that that to be
1: sort of an interesting tension. Yeah.
0: And and also, you know, I should... What I said a moment ago about things coming to light, they came to light for me. Obviously, in the year Mm -hmm. 2000, someone like John Singleton is going to be aware of the dynamics we're talking about. It's not like he didn't know or nobody knew. But it's tricky because it doesn't feel like in the final edit, it does not feel to me... Like, we are supposed to be that troubled by the deep corruption of cops. It feels like, to me, we are supposed Mm -hmm. to say, "Shaft's pretty clever for making this system work for him the way it does.
1: Yeah, I think you're right.
0: There (laughs) are moments when the rich, white, guilty criminal Christian Bale is being brought into a station house, and all these black cops are, like, cheering and being like, we got you. And I'm like, that just feels a little bit like obfuscation of the true dynamic. <laughs> you know, it just feels like it's sort of dressing up the police as an engine through which, you know, lower class people of color get justice over upper-class white criminals. And I'm like, uh.
1: But that's why I'm wondering if that is sort of the, like, wish fulfillment of the movie. It's like, what mm-hmm. if we used police corruption, but we used it against a Donald Trump Jr. type? You know what I mean? I see mean? that,
0: yeah. <laughs>
1: so it's less like the movie saying this is realistic. It's more like the movie being, like, a different kind of power fantasy. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think I think at the end of the day, this movie is not Singleton's pure vision. Like, everything that we seem to have read about it is that... I think he wrote this script with this guy, Shane Salerno, who I was actually reading, wrote a really lovely um, tribute on Deadline when John Singleton like pretty shockingly died in in 2019. He was only 51. So that was a big, you know, there were lots of tributes and, and retrospectives about his work that came out then. But it sounds like John and Shane wrote their version of this script, then... Scott Rudin hires this guy Richard Price who comes in to sort of do a rewrite that I think Singleton was very frustrated because he felt like the rewrite was taking away all of the unique things he had done in the in the script and sort of watering them down and not getting the essence of Shaft. And then the other factor here is that I don't think Samuel L. Jackson got along with John Singleton and I also don't no. think he got along with Scott Rudin's version of the movie. So you have like these three forces mm-hmm. in a way. The director the producer and the star and there's no combination of those that are sort of like working well together and they're all maybe having different versions of what this movie should be and so maybe part of the reason where we have such trouble being like what is this movie trying to say is because potentially it's trying to say three different things, things yeah and they don't quite work together as one yeah you know movie and all
0: of the strongest statements have been kind of sanded down maybe
1: or undercut, like, that scene, the little nod scene, is so prominent, even though it's probably a five-second scene. But something like that can just color the way you read the rest of the film, even if it's just a quick shot. Mm-hmm. It can just muddy things enough that, I don't know, you don't know what's happening by the end.
0: Yeah, so there's there's that, that sort of cross-purposes thing going on, and I felt like, I don't know, by... The little preview we got last week when we were chatting with Jules about Basquiat, is Jules said, yeah, that movie's really wild. And it's a combination of, it has some truly wild moments, and then it also at times feels to me really forgettable.
1: Yeah, it's pretty, again, simple. Mm -hmm. Not something that would really stand out with the same style that the 70s one does. Yeah, But again, I had fun. I mean, I'm hesitant Uh to... Like, again, it is sort of depending on your mindset of if you can ignore all of these things. But like in a bubble, like, I feel like this is a fun Samuel L. Jackson performance. It is, I think, well shot. The music is fun. I think it leans into some fun with the sort of transitions, like 70s style, sort of like not the Star Wars wipe, but it's sort of like they'll do these these little funky transitions. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Diagonal bars. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: You know, there's like a there's like an under. I guess not understated, but there is a style there mm-hmm. that's sort of like a hybrid of the aughts and the 70s. Mm-hmm. And again, I liked that it was just like propulsive. We're telling a story. We're getting out. And that's the
0: end of Shaft. Yeah. <laughs> so for me, the most fun always, always was when Peoples was on screen and mm-hmm. i this performance just might have clicked more with me than you i
1: don't think you're alone i was reading some tribute that was like people's hernandez is the greatest <laughs> character in movie history i think a, i think a lot of people really enjoyed this yeah
0: was it a shay serrano know, article
1: yeah it was yeah it I was like, from the ringer i
0: like shay serrano i follow him on twitter yeah, he's same. a great follow he he's clearly a huge people's fan although i gotta say dude drops a big old westworld spoiler in that article but so it goes mm. i kind of well well we'll talk about that eventually so <laughs> um so uh be careful of shay serrano's article if you have yet to watch westworld season one but i think the reason i want to include this movie is because of that kind of dialogue that there is around the character of peoples who really has struck a lot of people and i'm now in that crowd. I am mm-hmm. a big old people's fan. I think it is a top tier villain performance for this genre and era. I mean it's got it ticks a lot of boxes that i really enjoy. I just generally like the style of villains who are in good spirits the whole time, who are sort of like jovial. Yes. I like villains who kind of occupy a number of different modes and i think in terms of his style in this, the performance style It's extremely, literally soft-spoken at times. He kind of, like, Mm -hmm. quietly murmurs a lot of things. But even in those moments, you feel this sort of power. And at a lot of other times, he's, like, basically twitching with, I don't know, ambitions and machinations and charm. He's got this crazy walk that he does with his, like, hands, (laughs) like, kind of flying around in front of him.
1: Do you know what I love when he's kind of sitting in a window looking out, watching, and he's eating Chinese food Mm -hmm. with chopsticks? Mm -hmm. And he kind of does this thing where he just, like, Kind of like he waves. We're both doing it over Zoom. Yeah, he kind of like wait, like 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 the way you would. You you. know what it's like? It's like the devil wears Prada. Like that's all. It's like the energy of that. But he's got his chopsticks, and he's just kind of like, eh, Yeah. yeah, whatever's going on down there. Like that's the sort of we were talking about with Basquiat How Jeffrey Wright just like loves a prop and like a little you know thing he can use to build a character. And I was like, oh yeah. The chopsticks, and then the, there's another scene where he's holding a baby that had the same energy of, yeah. like, give me a prop, and that prop will be a baby. Yeah. <laughs> and that will bring something unique to this scene.
0: And it's shit like the baby that I think— I feel like John Singleton and Jeffrey Wright must have just clicked artistically one way or another because it feels like there are these things layered in. Like, we know Peoples has a baby. We know he has, he has an interest in, like, golf. We, we just get all these little details about him— and little like hints about what else is going on. He's got this one ice pick that he keeps using, where like nobody else in the movie has like an iconic weapon. Mm-hmm. There are these little things that just make me feel like there is depth to the character, mm-hmm. as well as I think just fucking hysterical lines and line deliveries. When Christopher Bell comes in like wearing his khaki, Shay Serrano actually yeah. mentions this in the article, and he says like, "Man, you look like a fucking duck hunter." It's just, and he has this like laugh when, right when he, uh, when his car like crashes into Buster Rhyme's car, he does this like little manic laugh that I like went back and rewatched four times. Mm-hmm. I just think it is rich with mannerisms, but the mannerisms do not feel to me like just cooked up mannerisms to make a character rich. They feel like they are grounded in a plausible, if larger than life, crime movie villain Mm -hmm. i also like a villain whose central like driving animus is clear i mean the way that like ambition you know from the he meets christian bale in a jail cell like a group holding cell and tries to bond with him over tiger woods (laughs) and boats that's
1: a fun thing he just kind of saddles up to him and he's like hey do you like golf like Like, he's just like i'm just gonna make small talk with you you got
0: a boat yeah yeah that nothing immediately leads to it Or comes from it, but then Christian Bale finds him later on. And when Christian Bale offers him money and Peoples is like, I don't want your money. I want you to take Mm -hmm. me legit. I want you to front for me. I want you to connect me to your world. Because you get, I think, an interesting little bit of commentary there where you can feel the way that this guy, who is in his own way sort of an amoral criminal... Although he's, you know, he's not the most dastardly guy in the world. Just feels how, because of his race and class group, he has this little line about, like, when I'm around here, I'm the king and nobody looks at me. When Mm -hmm. I go down, people, like, won't stop staring at me and I can't wait to come home. He just has this little bit of, like, social commentary about racial and class mobility you know, through the lens of him being like, I'm a villain, I want to expand my drug trade or whatever. But I just, mm-hmm. I just find it to be a solid grounding in a character who then has lots of fun bits to do.
1: There is a certain amount of, like, tragedy to him. Totally. As much as, I, th- I think he's one of those villains that you do sort of, like, you don't necessarily root for them to succeed, but you, like, you know, you enjoy watching them in a way that makes them compelling. And the idea that, like, yeah, he is limited in his ability to do crime mm-hmm. by racism there is like a and classism and anti-immigrant sentiment yeah all these things there is like a tragedy to that and that the even christian bale comes to him and is like help me out i'll pay you and he's like can you like you said i don't want you to pay me i want you to give me access to these spaces and even christian bale is like no i won't do that fuck you and you're like "God damn!" even this guy that came to him like asking him for help is now being so rude to his face like there is a real yeah injustice within the crime world hierarchy
0: it's a bit of a weird scene because then he's like okay then i'll do it for money Uh, which is kind (laughs) of weird like you don't know exactly whether that's going to come back to be something and then their sort of partnership ends up half dissolving it's not entirely clear but i do think you're right that he's to the point where i'm like we're teetering on the edge of this being to the detriment of the film a character who Mm -hmm. you almost want to root for it's like a little bit of that like killmonger syndrome Mm -hmm. although i you know it's i use the example from black panther and i actually think black panther is a movie which if you are reading closely does a very good job of making its villain a villain in spite of him being charismatic and having a sympathetic impetus but yeah i'm a little bit like when shaft kills his brother and he's so distraught i'm like Mm -hmm. this is the most raw i don't know 70s style acting pathos you get in this whole movie (laughs) And I don't feel that for Shaft. Shaft is just like, oh, I'm just going to go get the guy. I'm going to get the bad guys because that's what I do.
1: It made me feel, I was like, oh, I don't like Shaft now that he's killed this guy's brother. Yeah. Like, th- yeah, that was maybe a mistake in terms of keeping our sympathies with Shaft. Mm-hmm. I, I will point out, I think, so Peoples is a Dominican character. Mm-hmm. I don't think you would cast it this way today. They actually originally planned to cast John Leguizamo, mm-hmm. who left to do Moulin Rouge. John
0: Leguizamo, also great, probably would have been great. Yeah, I love
1: John Leguizamo. Um, So, yeah, just to throw that out there, like I think this is a sort of a 2000s era casting choice Mm -hmm. because Jeffrey Wright is not Hispanic. Yeah. But, yeah, I think that, I think at the end of the day, (laughs) these tropes, these like mafia gangster tropes are some of my least favorite tropes just in general Mm -hmm. in film. I feel like we've maybe run into this before on the podcast. So that tends to draw me less to this kind of performance, I think, than maybe it does for you. But that being said, I do think this is like a strong example of the charismatic but haunting crime lord archetype. Also, there's a scene where he's talking to someone while he poops, and I feel like we just need to acknowledge that that happened. Absolutely.
0: So- Here's my list of the five wildest parts of this movie. Okay, I'm ready. I'm ready for okay. it. Okay, number five, as you've already mentioned, Shaft taking his badge and resigning by throwing it like a throwing star, and it gets stuck in the wall of a courtroom. And the camera kind of follows
1: it as it's zooming. Yeah, it's, it's a good, it's a fun, it's a
0: fun little stylish shot. Yeah, you could probably see that in the trailer if you just want to pick that up. You can. Um, two or, or uh, four, just the fact that this movie ends kind of out of nowhere with the courtroom assassination of. Walter Ooh, Wade.
1: I loved that. Yeah,
0: I thought that was cool, too.
1: It's the mom of the kid
0: Who that was assassin, who was killed. Christian right?
1: Bale killed. And we have seen multiple courtroom scenes where every single time, because Christian Bale's character is basically Donald Trump Jr., like, he can just sort of get out of any- He's super rich and wealthy. His dad's powerful. He can- make any he can make you know million dollar bail he flees the country for two years at one point and like ba- barely gets in trouble for yeah. it and at the end there's this sense, shafts like don't worry like we all the pieces are into place the justice well the justice system will actually serve justice this time and Mackay pfeiffer's mom's the character of Mackay pfeiffer's mom is just like okay and then just straight up murders him and it's like there you go justice is served yeah. i was like damn that was a good ending yeah
0: definitely caught me caught me off guard and uh, i thought that was interesting um number three people stabbing himself in the chest with the ice pick Mm -hmm. uh just an insane visual you know i mean like like i think we've seen distraught villain walking down the street like screaming like i'm gonna fucking get you but for him to be like so insane he's just sticking himself with the ice pick that's that's a crazy scene number two the line is giuliani time Yeah, that's, uh, that was really something. I mean, just again, to kind of like things that have not aged well, A, just because like Giuliani is sort of melted down into like a, just a deranged kook. But at the time, he was this sort of like beloved by all Republicans and loads of centrist Democrats mayor of New York, credited with solving the crime problem. Because in the late 90s, I think the worst thing we could think of was like urban street crime. So you have the crime bill era and you have Giuliani as mayor, this rule that was basically characterized by, like, way excessive police enforcement, all these brutality claims and harassment, etc. And then just the line, like, Shaft, essentially to say, like, no more Mr. Nice Guy saying it's Giuliani time. That was a little wild. Uh. Can
1: I say it's even, I don't know, worth. So that specific phrase is, like, reportedly what police officers actually said while they were, like, torturing.
0: <gasps> um Really?
1: people that they had
0: taken into custody damn i assumed it was a i assumed it was an invention of this film that's fucked
1: yeah and i think again because shaft says that after he kills two corrupt police officers Hmm. so again there's i think there's a little there's supposed to be a little bit of irony there in terms of like well now we're using our vigilante methods against you Yeah, But I also think it's such a strange thing to evoke and this sort of idea of like, well, just do violence against the bad guys and now everything's good is also not a particularly, I don't know, good sentiment. Yeah. Anyway, a wild moment, I think, and would have been even wilder for a 2000s audience who was like steeped in sort of an ongoing story about that kind of stuff. Although
0: now it's more amusing in the era where... Mr giuliani is like mr all seasons landscaping yeah True, sure, so. sure but the number one craziest moment of the movie for me is when peoples is like talking to christian bale basically being like you have to do what i say and it doesn't matter what you want and while he's villain monologuing just walks into his bathroom without closing the door Pulls down his pants, sits on the toilet, and in the middle of his line, just like you hear the like shit come out of his butt.
1: <laughs> it's a specifically that sounds well. It sounds more graphic and less comical than it is. It's basically just a little like plunk into yeah, the water, like boop. mid <laughs> mid sentence. It is a such a such a choice, <laughs> and you know that they just had to add. They added that little sound effect in post. Mm-hmm. You know, like they were like, where should we put the little plop?
0: Yeah, but yeah, it's like <laughs> I mean, it 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 is honestly. I love it. It feels very transgressive to me in the way that, like, there's a lot of things we see in a lot of films, but you don't really get that many pooping scenes. Mm. There's not that many pooping scenes in film.
1: And not in, you know, this is a... When you see a pooping scene, it's usually like a a comedic diarrhea scene. Mm -hmm. This is a whole new avenue of, like, subtle pooping scenes.
0: And just using something that raw and shocking... To just show that Peoples is completely unafraid of this guy. He's completely disrespecting the guy he's talking to, and he's he has no fear or and feels no vulnerability in just being like, Yeah, now I'm gonna take my pants off in front of you and poop.
1: Mm-hmm. It's a it's an ultimate the ultimate power play, perhaps. Yeah.
0: So that's that to me is another iconic Peoples moment. And I think for all the all the peoples who love Peoples there are lots of those which are there to hold on to.
1: Do you know what moment I liked was when one of the, the sort of like threads, the sort of threads that are all circling each other in this movie is there's these two corrupt cops who are sort of hired by peoples and then Shaft messes with them and they're just kind of like there. Mm-hmm. These are the people that get murdered in the It's Giuliani time. Yeah. Segment, but one is Dan Hedaya, who was in. I know him best as the dad from Clueless. That's right, and it's always you know it. That movie was sort of using his persona, his like tougher persona, in a funny way. But so it's funny that that's my main go-to for him. Anyway, there's this. I think it's the scene where People's brother gets killed. It's just basically this massive shootout that's happening like in the middle of a street. Everyone's running. We're getting the waitress here. These people are dying. Somebody's stabbing themselves with the ice pick mm-hmm. and like the button on that scene is just the cut to Dan Hedaya and his partner in the car and he's just like, "Fuck." <laughs> like it's just such an underplayed Like, "Uh-oh, what are we going to do now?" Yeah. <laughs> and that really made me laugh. It was a good delivery.
0: Yeah. I I think Dan Hedaya is good in it. I mean, it's it's funny. I, you know, I think I sort of complained a little about the plot being unclear with the crisscrossing the end but i think the i think the two crooked cops dan Hadaya and uh, ruben santiago hudson i think they're fun i think dan hedaya's performance is fun i like getting to see him in that angle and uh yeah i think they're an interesting little element in there although the sort of tone around them from time to time i find hard to read but mm-hmm. good dan Hadaya. any other highlights in the cast for you
1: well, I feel like we have to do a little Christian Bale sidebar since we do. this is a. I think this is a role calling first that we're seeing one of our canonized actors in another film. I right?
0: guess that's true. Yeah, we haven't
1: revisited any performances, so I feel okay, like you know, so- we have to do a little a little Bale. Bale Momo I was trying to think of a pun and I couldn't think of one.
0: Uh okay, let's see. Um
1: Christian Corner. The Christian
0: Corner. Well that sounds like I'm sure there are lots of Christian corners and that is something different. In <laughs>
1: the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, Welcome to Christian Corner.
0: Um our Christian Bale Corner.
1: Christian Corner. I don't like
0: him. No, I'm not calling it Christian I Corner. I thought
1: he was great. It was it was surreal. Because I'm just so familiar with this period of his like face. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like a lot of the movies I like, this is, you know, right around, it comes out the same year as American Psycho, actually. Mm -hmm. I think he filmed it after, which is crazy to me because I I was like, how did he like lose all that bulk? Like he's not as bulked up here, but I guess muscle goes away quickly. Anyway, I'm just so familiar with his face from this era. Mm -hmm. It was like discovering like old family photos I didn't know existed or something. I was like, Christian, I think he's great. He is so evil. Yes. And hateable.
0: I wrote down a note in the scene where he is like razzing Mackay Pfeiffer, just like saying all these like racist shit to him in the bar. I I wrote down and he's he is kind of like a, you know, rich bro. I wrote down. He's like American psycho, but evil. Oh, Mm -hmm. wait, (laughs) But he is no, I had that same impulse. I was like, evil. "Oh, this
1: is the most evil character he's played," and I was like, "Well, I guess American Psycho he does do like more evilness." But it's in American Psycho, there's that element of comedy that sort of is yeah. He's it's commenting it's on it.
0: So slimy and racist and unredeemable. Yeah, and you even do get some. It's not like one of those people where they give you no glimpse of his point of view. There's a scene. One or two scenes where he's like talking to his wealthy dad and wealthy lawyer, you get a hint that like he lost his mother and his dad has like a hot young wife. Mm -hmm. And even as you get his perspective, you're like, there is nothing to care for here. I mean, the Donald Trump Jr. comparison, I think, is an apt one. Maybe that's maybe that would be seen as just, you know, liberal hysteria on my part. But the idea of someone who's so silver spoon raised with so little of a moral compass And it's not even, you know, as as we sort of like compare it to American Psycho, which may have some mannerisms in common, it's not even like the guy who has the compulsion to kill. It's just like a shitty dude who has no desire to stop being a shitty dude. He just wants to escape accountability for his actions.
1: And I think he plays it so well that I kind of get why test audiences were like, we want less of this and more of people's. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because people's villainy is like fun movie villainy. Yes. Whereas Christian Bale as Walter Wade Jr., that villainy is, like, icky and realistic. Yeah, it's
0: despicable and, and feels familiar. But maybe,
1: in a way, the movie would have been stronger if he had been the main villain and the main target, because, again, I think there's something subversive about seeing this uber-privileged guy who always, the system always benefits. Like, seeing the system twisted to take him down, mm-hmm. I think could be interesting and subversive in a way. It does The movie kind of, like, peters out and doesn't really follow through on that. Yeah. But it's also hilarious to me that, like, he does this, he does American Psycho, and then everyone's like, He should play Batman <laughs> It's like What do we think Batman is? That these are our reference points. It's like a real trilogy of little like rich <laughs> mm-hmm. rich, you know, guys who at least present as assholes to the outside world. Like you could really you could put this American Psycho and Batman Begins into a little trilogy of Christian Bale's rich American
0: Yeah. Things. You know those like matrices? Like I I it would be interesting to look at a um You know, basically a two axis, like the Christian Bale, blue collar to white collar on like your X, Y axis and like Mm -hmm. evil to good. You've got Bruce Wayne as like top right corner, super white collar, super good. And then you've got Mm -hmm. Patrick Bateman, let's say almost to the top left corner, like over in that area. And then you've got Walter Wade Jr. top left corner. And then you've Mm -hmm. got like Dickie Eklund kind of like... all the way blue collar in the good but not all the way over to the good corner Uh i forget what else we did
1: it's just funny that there was this real period of his career where it was like we only want to see you playing wealthy american wall street bros yeah which (laughs) i don't feel like is how his career started or how his career is currently going Mm -hmm. but in the 2000s we were like christian bale this is what we want from you yeah Please play this role in every possible. Well,
0: you know, Laurie is iteration. a Laurie is good and wealthy. He's blue. Color. He's he's kind of true. like he's kind of like up in the right quadrant. He's pretty good and he's pretty wealthy. Although he's not Bruce Wayne wealthy. Yes, and then you've got true cowboy from Newsies Jack Kelly, extremely bottom left. Uh wait,
1: mm-hmm. uh, you're going to need to
0: draw bottom this out left. And, like, put it on <laughs>
1: yeah, that's <our laughs> right Twitter
0: account. I know this is terrible podcasting. <laughs> I'm trying to describe a visual two-axis matrix. I'll just sketch it and put it on Twitter mm. and I'll leave it at that for now. But yes, I agree. Yeah. It is a really solid, again, like he does not have the the moral complexity of people's, but I do mm-hmm. still think it is a fully lived in Christian Bale role. He gets a cell phone as a prop at one point. So there's that.
1: Mm. Also, we haven't I don't think we've mentioned this on the podcast yet, but one of Jeffrey Wright's upcoming roles is as Commissioner Gordon in the new Batman, right? So this the scenes of them together are like a former Batman and a future Commissioner Gordon yes. meeting up in a prison cell. And uh while Nick Fury watches from afar. That's right.
0: And uh actually um Pat Hingle, who plays the judge in Shaft, mm-hmm. was Commissioner Gordon in the original Batman, the, the eighty nine Batman. Mm-hmm despite the fact so we've
1: got two commissioner gordons right, two and gordons. batman mm-hmm. none of which are from the same batman universes. which
0: is awesome except i am again going to sort of like make the make the argument that like when the superhero landscape has gotten as crowded as it is now we're going to have this again because in the last movie we didn't comment on commissioner gordon talking to the green goblin in an art gallery
1: wow but you know so right and uh everyone has been a superhero everyone's a
0: superhero some except point. for tony
1: collette let her be a superhero man yeah she'd be good
0: hero or villain mm. she i feel like what villain is both? more predictable she did um she was a villain in triple x2 which also has samuel l jackson
1: whoa and tony collette and christian bale were in velvet goldmine together ah,
0: i still haven't seen velvet goldmine guys well,
1: maybe when we do our tony collette series so we can... many
0: movies to see too many movies. Yeah. Any other last hits on
1: Chef? Uh, <laughs> we did it in sync. Um, you know, no. <laughs> I don't know if this movie. I don't know. I don't know if this movie. That's my ultimate thought. Oh wait. I here's what I was going to say. I feel like we need to close out Christian Corner oh, yeah. by saying Amen. So to <laughs> circle back around. Okay. <laughs> to officially end that segment. Thank you. Um. As to Shaft, I think it is what it is. I think you're right that watching this, half watching this on TV one afternoon, but in a version that still has the motherfuckers in Mm -hmm. it, would be the ultimate way to watch this movie. I don't think it necessarily holds up from a moral point of view. I think as a piece of early 2000s filmmaking, it's kind of fun. But I think that if you want the pure Shaft experience, the 1971 version is the way to go. Yeah,
0: and and I would sort of say, I think you're totally spot on that I have... Maybe a great deal of enthusiasm for sort of like gangster movie tropes and like just criminal villains and those kind of characters. And if you do as well, you gotta see People's Hernandez. But mm-hmm. beyond that, I would also echo. I could I could talk longer about all the things I like about 1971 Shaft. It has so much fun in it, and it's just a it's just an easy watch and a cool little time capsule and uh, mm-hmm. and Richard Roundtree's performance is terrific, so.
1: Yeah, super fun and, like, accessible mm-hmm. movie, you know, even if you're one of those people that's like, oh, old movies are not always for me, like, I feel like that's one you could throw on and still get quite a lot out totally. of. Totally,
0: yeah. All, and all the things I was saying about, like, oh, it's like the real New York, like, you know, it's just, yeah, you can you can enjoy that on a lot of levels.
1: Yeah, and I will always remember Shaft as the movie that really drilled home for me that Jeffrey Wright is a little bit of a ham in the best way. Mm-hmm. That my idea of his little, you know, internal scientist nerd characters is but one of the many flavors of ham that Jeffrey Wright can mm-hmm. can serve up on a plate. And that is very fun. This 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 mini series is really opening my eyes to I think the breadth of Jeffrey Wright's work as an
0: actor. So next episode is gonna be a role calling first, technically. Because we are going to be doing our first mini-series. So three years after Shaft, Shaft is 2000. Three years later, HBO gets their home box office-y pause. Uh, and I, I, I don't know exactly what like what HBO existed as at the time. Like, it, like the prestige TV era was not there yet. So I'm kind of curious to contextualize this and that. But they take on Angels in America, the Tony winning, Tony... Written, Tony Kushner written play (laughs) that made Jeffrey Wright a Broadway icon, and they adapted it to a miniseries. We've mentioned it a couple times on here because it was such a, the play version was such an important moment at the start of Wright's career. But next episode, we are going to take a look at his turn as Belize and Mr. Lies in that miniseries. I can't wait.
1: Mm-hmm. I've never seen it. I've seen at least half of the, there's two parts of the play. I've seen at least one half of them on stage, but I've never seen this miniseries. It is on HBO Max if anybody wants to watch along. I think it's a six-part, so like six-hour series. But yeah, one of the uh, incredible cast and sort of one of the most influential plays in recent memory, really. Yeah,
0: with good reason, in my opinion. So yeah, we're going to jump on in. Isaac Hayes, if you want to take us home. Roll Calling is produced and recorded by us, Ned Baker and Caroline Sita. Our theme music was created by Patrick Buddy, and our logo was designed by Nick Wanserski. You can follow us on Twitter, at roll Calling and email us at rollcalling at gmail.com. That's roll, R-O-L-E, and we deeply appreciate you rating and reviewing the podcast wherever you can do that. We'll be back next time to continue our Jeffrey Wright series with Angels in America. Until then... Who's the black private dick that's a sex machine to all the chicks? Chuck! Sure. You're damn right. Who is a man that would risk his neck for?